Hello and welcome to the Learn Medical Art podcast where we share our tips, tricks and advice on the medical illustration and animation industry. I'm Emily Holden, a medical illustrator and animator. And I'm Annie Campbell, also a medical illustrator and animator. You can find our show notes and resources from this episode and more educational content such as industry interviews, tutorials and more at www.learnmedical.art. Today we have a special episode with medical illustrator and animator Paul Kelly interviews medical legal illustrator Annie Goff. Annie is a veteran and has worked in the niche field of medical legal illustration. She's recently released a book called Injury Illustrated, How Medical Images Win Legal Cases. Injury Illustrated is the first book of its kind. It is the essential guide on medical illustrations used in the legal context. This book examines the creation of visual graphics known as demonstrative exhibits. These chapters describe how to tell a story about gross anatomy, medical malpractice and or death investigation in court by using medical images. These exhibits provide an understanding of traumatic injuries, surgeries and radiological studies for the jury, judges, adjusters, mediators and attorneys. You can buy the book from Amazon or from Annie's website at www.agillustrations.com. So without further ado, we'll let Paul take it away. Alrighty, so here we are with Annie Goff. So good to see you. Thank you so much for willing to jump on the call with me today and uh, share your experiences and all your knowledge. I love your book. It's absolutely fantastic. This is something that Everyone in the industry should own a copy of this. Everybody should be reading this book. This is fantastic. Thank so, you. And thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. I'm excited about this. Yeah. Let's start off with a little bit of, uh, about the book. Tell us about how you came up with this idea and what was the inspiration for, for writing the book? Well, um, I, I lecture a lot to attorneys and I present what I do to attorneys And also to medical illustration students, I teach about the medical legal industry. And I keep teaching the same thing over and over and over again. I'm like, I really just need to write all this down. So the idea for the book started out as a textbook for law school. And my goal was to have a a book that a law professor would give his students as a summer elective or something to learn about demonstrative evidence and storytelling in the courtroom. And it would be about how do you find a medical illustrator? How do you use a medical illustrator? And all of these sorts of things. And I realized that I'm probably not going to start teaching or being a professor in a law school. (laughs) But I started writing the book anyway. And I realized that there's a lot of stories to tell. And it's an entire profession that no one knows anything about. So I kept writing the book. It became more of a nonfiction memoir and less of a textbook. And it's sort of like leaving a legacy. And it's promoting the profession. and But it's also telling the truth about the medical legal industry and encouraging other illustrators to work in this industry, explaining why there's so much work to be done. And also helping attorneys, teaching attorneys of all ages how they can win more cases and really understand their medical records and their clients much better by visualizing everything that happened to them. And so I started writing a book, which I didn't have time to do. It was kind of crazy. It took me two years to write it. And then I found a publisher and spent about six months with them fine-tuning everything, editors, illustrations. I thought I had everything done. And then they told me every single illustration needs a caption. And oh my gosh, it was just like something that kept going and going and going. Um, And now it's actually, it's a book. You can hold it in your hand. Actually, hold on. He's under my skull. Um, (laughs) Yeah. 
And it's, it's crazy. I, I hated English growing up. Like I didn't like English classes. I didn't like language. I didn't like reading. I was a total science geek. And so to write a book was sort of, I, I don't even know how to explain it, but I'm glad it's over. <laughs> <laughs> right on, right on. <laughs> Well, you know, we should probably also tell folks out there who are unfamiliar about the field of med legal. So mm -hmm. can you share what specifically is the field of med legal illustration as opposed to the larger field of medical illustration? Right. So that's actually how I, I teach a lot of people about what medical legal illustration is, is first I tell them about all the other fields of medical illustration animation. And I talk about veterinary, pharmaceutical, publishing, patient education, surgical planning, everything, gaming, like it's all this amazing, cool stuff. And then legal is where you are creating medical illustrations specifically to teach a lay audience, typically a jury or a judge or an insurance adjuster that has no background in medicine. You are creating illustrations for them to teach them about what happened to a client. The client is usually the injured person, typically. In a personal injury case would be a car crash or an 18-wheeler runs over a motorcyclist or um, also in medical malpractice cases. So a surgery goes wrong. You want to illustrate the surgery because it's very complex. The majority of juries and judges, if they're sitting in a room listening to a surgeon either read his or her operation report or to listen to them on the stand talk about what they, they did, all that terminology is way over the head. Like, how do you even get yourself in the right frame of mind to understand the inside of the liver? So to do an illustration that simplifies everything is huge and it makes the world easier for the attorney. And it makes it easier for the judge and the jury as well to understand what's going on. Absolutely. That's fantastic. So as a, a medical legal illustrator or animator, you don't just work in injury and medical malpractice. You may also work in defective products, things that explode, mm. things that go wrong, car defects. There's tons of animations. There's the criminal side. There's homicide. Worked on some sexual assault cases, uh, some child abuse cases. There's a whole world within the legal community where visuals are of great benefit to the attorney and to the audience. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I, I wanted to also start off. Um, I thought you had a great observation in your book that you mentioned how not everyone describes their career as having been inspired by their early life. They don't always say that, you know, they came up with this idea to pursue this path ever since mm -hmm. they were young, but a lot of medical illustrators actually do. We refer yeah. back to drawing when we were kids and stuff. Uh -huh. So I'm wondering if maybe you can talk about some of your really early experiences when you were growing up and how those influenced your career choice. Yeah, most medical illustrators, we are we are all a unique group. Most kids that love to draw don't also like to dissect frogs and they don't like blood and that kind of stuff. I guess growing up for me, I drew all the time, mostly because I, I think it was the uh, kind of a way my parents kept me in check or kept me in line or kept me busy or kept me occupied. But I would always draw at dinner. I would draw while I was with my parents. Like anytime I was with my mom, she would just throw me paper and a pen and be like, draw something. And what I found interesting is I was never this super creative oil painter. Like when I think of an artist, I think of someone with a canvas and paint and they're just like pouring their heart out. I was never like that. I always had to have someone tell me what to draw. Like I, I needed a task. 
Mm. So my mom would be like, draw this and I'd draw it or do this and I'd draw it. And then I, I got into drawing maps for some reason and we traveled a lot mm. we sailed and I started getting into drawing, you know, the lakes and the cities and the roads and the different states. And maybe it was like a bird's eye view or or maybe it was spatial orientation of things. But I love drawing maps. <laughs> I got really into that. So kind of coming at it from a different angle of just, you know, having fun with with creating something on the page. But also it sounds like you always liked the idea of having an intent of communicating mm-hmm. something with with the art you were doing. Right. And that that rings true because I feel like I was always had a task. Like I love to play Pictionary because the drawing had a purpose. I guess I did a lot of illustrations of horses for my school because we were the Mustangs. But yeah, I did do <laughs> a lot of really fine art growing up and I wasn't really in I guess I was encouraged to take art classes when I was very young. I always took one in the summer in between school semesters. But as I got into high school and definitely in college, I I wasn't as, I guess my parents didn't really want me following the artist becoming an art major or following that line. And I, I really started working more on studies and I was a math geek. I love math and science. I think I really liked math and physics because there's always the questions at the end of the assignments that were story problems. And the story problems needed a diagram mm. or you had to sketch how you came up with, you know, whatever the solution was. So I always loved the art side of mm-hmm. everything, the visual side of science and even math and physics. But yeah, I, I really pulled away from art as... A potential career. I did take an art history course, and I think that's usually where I ate my lunch and took my naps. I, I wasn't very a very good <laughs> artist. I really was a scientist, and um, that's how I got into medical illustration. Oh, very cool! Very cool. There was a passage in your book where you talked about a serial killer mm-hmm. that was in the the region where you were growing up, the BTK killer, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And this really resonated with me, uh, given that my dad has worked uh, with serial killers throughout his career. Wow. Uh, he's a forensic psychiatrist. Oh, wow. Um, so, so I grew up listening to a mm-hmm. lot of these stories. And I was wondering if you might share with us a little bit about this experience and how it affected you and how it kind of fed into the work that you ended up doing. You know, it's funny looking back, I never really thought of those years as something that helped create who I am today until I started writing the book and I really started piecing things together. And I wanted to write about how medical legal illustration is really showing the truth. So it's taking the evidence of the case and showing the exact truth in black and white. And so you have to be very suspicious. And when you read operation reports mm. and when you look at radiology from in the legal field, you're trying to win a case. And especially in medical malpractice, every document you go through, you have to assume something's been omed- omitted. I had a case where somebody shredded documents during a surgery. And so you have to look, you know, what's missing? What's the omission? Where's the lie? Where's the mistake that then caused our client to be where they are now? And I started thinking about how I was a suspicious little kid. I was very cautious (laughs) and curious and suspicious. And 
when I was growing up, my dad, he never locked the front door and it made me very nervous. And I would wait, I'd stay up at night and I'd wait for them to hear my parents' TV go off and I'd sneak up and I'd wake up and I'd, I'd go and I'd lock the front door because I was like, why isn't he locking the front door? Anything could happen. There's like bad people out there. And he'd get up in the morning to let the dog out or whatever. And he'd go to the door and it'd be locked and he'd cuss and he'd be mad. But I was always, I had tons of nightmares. <laughs> I was really suspicious. I'd get up in the night and I'd look out my window and I would have these, sometimes they were dreams and sometimes I would imagine them, but I would imagine like a plane crashing, like literally crashing in the neighborhood, a huge, like, you know, passenger jet. And it would start on fire and it would hit the ground and it would slowly slide up the driveway and it would come all the way to where like the nose of the plane was like <laughs> two inches away from my window. And everything would be on fire and I'd have to go outside and rescue people. Whoa. And and I'm realizing that when I was little, Wichita, Kansas was not the safest place in the world. Not only BTK, but we had gangs. We had all kinds of really interesting. It was an interesting city, a very traditional social experiment. If you remember taking sociology where a city grows on a river and then it becomes a donut and then it grows and then mm -hmm. the center dies, you know, so... Uh, which right, was yeah. an interesting place. And I realized that through that experience and through being nervous and cautious about the bad people out there, it made me uh, aware of that and good in forensics because I didn't just trust everyone to be a good person. I knew that there, there were people out there that were bad. Listening to audiobooks taught me how to write a book because I listened to people speaking. And I was like, what do I like? What do I like about that? What made mm -hmm. that interesting for me? So when I wrote my book, I read it out loud a lot. And so okay. I listened to a lot of audiobooks because I love it when the narrator is, is the author. And I was listening to Brene Brown the other night. She was talking about, about the conspiratorial mind. And I'm not into conspira conspiracy theories and all that kind of stuff, but the conspiratorial mind, what it believes, as she says, she quoted somebody else, shit never just happens. Like something happens. Somebody knew something. Mm. There's fault. And as a medical legal illustrator, you're always looking for the negligence. You're looking for what really happened. And I think I got a lot of that from the way I was raised. Like, for example, in a case, right. I had a medical malpractice case where a woman went in to have her gallbladder removed. This is very typical. Anyone that works in medical legal gallbladder, the biliary tree, all the arteries, it gets complicated in there. It can get scarred. A lot of lawsuits happen, like on the plaintiff side and on the defense side, there's good cases for both. But I had a case and it was a gallbladder removal. And in the operation report, the surgeon says that he he starts out laparoscopic. He's in there and he places his first clip and he says, I think that I've clipped the common bile duct, which is a huge no-no. And he says, I immediately called interventional radiology to do an ERCP. And an ERCP is basically photography of the pancreas and liver. So he calls the radiologist and do an ERCP study to see if he's actually clipped the common bile duct. And in fact, he has. So then interventional radiology goes away. He goes back in and in his op report, he goes, then I went ahead and I called ahead to the liver specialist 
told them that I was going to be sending a patient. I went ahead and I removed the gallbladder and I did this and I did this and I closed and instrument and sponges counts were correct and everything. So he's making himself look like he did all the right things, even though he had made a mistake. So this case goes on for years and the attorneys finally reach out to me and they're like, okay, we want to do illustrations for this case. And we want to show where the clip was and the surgery and what everything looked like, what her anatomy looked like, because everyone looks different. And uh, sure enough, I was like, well, let's let's get the ERCP. I want to see the radiology that they took. And so I get the ERCP that they take during the surgery. I get the follow-up CT that the next surgeon takes in the emergency room because her liver ends up completely bad. It crashes. And then we get the final pathology report and radiology when they remove the liver. She ends up having to have a liver transplant. And what we notice is when, when the emergency room guy goes in, they take the CT and they go in to do the initial repair after the first surgeon messes everything up. There are eight clips in the liver bed, in like the faucet where the gallbladder is. So there's a clip on the common bile duct. There's clips all over for all the little arteries. And he's clipped off the hepatic artery, I think on the right side, which is huge. She ends up getting a necrotic liver. Yeah. So there's eight clips. And then at the very end, when they remove everything, those eight clips are there, right? So I get the ERCP that Mm -hmm. the surgeon says he requests as soon as he places his first clip and realizes he's made a mistake. Well, guess how many clips are in the ERCP? Eight which means he went in, he made a giant mess of everything. And before he closed, he had the radiologist come in and verify what he already knew. So it's a little lie in the operation report, the order of which things happen. But for an attorney to have that knowledge, to know that he lied in his operation report is huge once you start to depose the surgeon and ask him questions, because you can set him up to then say, oh, well, if you said this... Then look at this image. Why are there eight clips here? And without a medical illustrator, no one on that legal team ever would have looked at those images because they don't understand what they are looking at. So they would have no no interest to go in and look at them unless they had paid for a radiology expert. So that's the fun stuff. It's always fun to find something like that. (laughs) You call the attorney and be like, hey, guess what? (laughs) (laughs) There's something wrong. Which is really yeah. good for you. <laughs> yeah, that's that's stuff that like the average juror is not going to be able to wrap their head around. But right. you show them an illustration, yeah, different case. Exactly. And that's one of the most important things yeah. in medical legal is, you know, sometimes I feel like my artwork is not the best. Like I don't want to show it in the salon for the AMI. I don't want to post oh, it. I don't want to put it I think it that's all of us though. Yeah. But what you... The beautiful thing about medical legal work is that the jury, they it doesn't need to be perfect. It doesn't need to be beautiful. It just needs to tell the story and it needs to be accurate. So if a shadow is wrong, the work has purpose and it has an intent. And as long yeah. as it works to tell the story, it is successful, even if it's not the prettiest. But of course, being pretty is also helpful. But it's not required. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Accuracy is required. Well, what's also not necessarily required for our profession, but which you definitely have is this incredible experience of having worked as an autopsy technician. Mm-hmm. And I would love to hear more about this. You talk about this a bit in the book. Can you tell us about 
this yeah. experience of working as an autopsy technician. It was amazing and crazy. Um, basically, I graduated um, in college as a pre-med student. Actually, for the record, I was a pre-med student for three and a half semesters, and then I didn't want to take inorganic chemistry too, because I knew I was <laughs> never going to write anyone a prescription and I didn't need pharmaceutical. So I went to the dean and I just said, what, what else can I do to graduate as a full-time student? So I ended up graduating with a biology degree and they didn't have an art minor, even though I'd been taking art classes. So I was basically a biology grad turned out into the world and I didn't know anything about medical illustration yet. And I had no idea what to do. I mean, become a phlebotomist. I mean, I wasn't sure what I was interested in. And uh, <laughs> a good friend uh, of my mom's, I play a lot of golf. And I was playing golf and a friend of my mom's was playing with us and she was the county treasurer. And she knew that this job was coming open. She's like, you might really like this. And I was so excited. And I went down and I was shocked. All it was was like a psychology interview to make sure you weren't like a psycho. And I got a job. (laughs) And as an autopsy technician, you're like the surgical assistant to a surgeon. So when you're doing surgery, the surgeon's on one side, the assistant's on the other, and you move up and down the body together. So the coroner or the medical Mm -hmm. examiner, so they are medical examiners, they're MDs. We had a chief coroner and a deputy coroner, and I was essentially their assistant. So I moved on the other side of the body as they moved up and down. So I handled all the radiology. You would take films of the body before you went into it to identify, you know, bullets or a burn victim. Sometimes a a crime will be covered up with a fire. So somebody might stab someone with a knife and then burn the house down to cover up the crime. And the handle, the wooden handle of the knife will burn off, but the blade will still be inside of them. So you want to take x-rays of everything to Mm. see what you might be running into. And we weighed organs and took toxicology and basically did everything. And it was the most amazing preparatory experience, not only for doing medical legal work, because it's all trauma, but it was a huge advantage to going to medical illustration school. Because when I went into gross anatomy 101 with all the medical illustrators at the medical school, and we're in our first lab, and everyone's in groups standing around their first cadaver. I had already worked on about 250 dead bodies by then. (laughs) That's amazing. Wow. So seeing the cadaver was kind of like, and I mean, cadavers are not like real dead people at all. There's no real blood. They're (laughs) completely doused in formaldehyde, all the colors gone. Cadavers smell horrible for a completely different reason why a real fresh dead body smells horrible, (laughs) but it was an excellent preparatory experience where all of a sudden now gross anatomy as your first semester as a medical illustration student is not intimidating. Sure. It's still a ton of Mm -hmm. memorization Mm -hmm. and you still have to learn origin and insertion of everything. And it's a lot of stuff, but it wasn't near as terrifying having that experience. You know, I I listened to one of the SciArt podcasts the other day and the girls Mm -hmm. were talking about, Mm -hmm. CVs, like your resume and your CV and how important it is to, you know, not just use a form and all that kind of stuff. And they were talking about how unique it is when you Mm -hmm. find someone that has an experience above and beyond medical illustration animation that you know can come in that can be a benefit later. Like you find out someone used to work in a laboratory. Mm -hmm. 
you're like, oh, well, when we have to draw syringes and Petri dishes and centrifuges and stuff, they're going to know what those things look like. And that's going to be really important. Well, doing the job as an autopsy technician is a huge, excellent background into what I do every day and imagining the trauma and imagining what it looks like, you know, when someone comes in and they have little pieces of windshield all over them to, to have that visual. And I think I would encourage any medical illustrator, um, definitely before you go to medical illustration school, to take a cool job that might apply, you know, work in a cancer research center or If you know there's something you like specifically, do that. If you think you might want to do veterinary illustration, go feed horses for a summer or something because you'll see cool stuff. Oh, totally. Absolutely. So many things can be gained from, you know, these early job experiences that really do translate into the professional world. You mentioned throughout the book, folks that uh, helped you out along the way, uh, a lot of the facilitators to your success. And I'm wondering if you have any advice uh, for artists uh, who are seeking to get into this profession in how they can seek out folks who who could help them or or any tips you might have for networking. Network all you can, meet anyone and everyone that you can, because you never know how you might be able to collaborate together. They call it shaking hands and kissing babies. And you have to be able to get out there and meet people and talk to people and talk about who you are and don't be afraid. And and if you are already a medical illustrator, get involved. I spent four years on the board of the AMI. And because of that experience, I accidentally was in the right room at the right time which absolutely accelerated my career. The American Academy of Clinical Anatomists is closely partnered with the AMI, mm-hmm. the Association of Medical Illustrators. And the president of the AMI is always invited to the AACA conference. And the president of the AACA is always invited to the AMI conference. And I'd been on the board for about four years and the AACA was getting ready to have a conference in Denver, which is where I live. And for some reason, the president of the AMI could not attend. And so at the very last minute, she asked me to go. And I was like, oh, great. But then she was like, you need to give the welcome address. I was like, what? She's like, yeah, there'll be about 500 people there. Just stand (laughs) up and introduce them to Denver and welcome them and tell them who the AMI is. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like five days. Really? I have to go do this? I was so scared because at the time I wasn't presenting very much maybe a little bit, but very little, mostly to students here locally. So I went and I was nervous and I welcomed everyone to Denver and I was in the room. I was at the conference for three days and I met an anatomist from London who started talking to me. Many of you probably know him. He's now spoke at the AMI several times, Dr. Peter Abrahams. He then introduced me to the dean, well, not at the time was a dean, but has become the dean of a medical school on the island of Grenada. And he was like, oh, Dr. Lucas, you need to meet Annie. She graduated from the Georgia program. And Dr. Lucas had just hired a medical illustrator from the Georgia program. So we got to talking and he's like, well, what do you do? Because everything he really understood at that time was textbooks and publishing, publishing papers with and journals and everything had to have an illustration and it was all anatomy, which was why he was at the AACA. And I started talking to him about what I did. And he's like, oh my gosh, he goes, you've got to come down and give a presentation to my faculty because I'm trying to explain to my faculty how important medical illustration is in the world, not just 
for us on campus as anatomists. And sure enough, by that networking, by that experience on the board, by being in the right room, I became a visiting professor to the medical school on the island of Grenada, St. George's University. And how amazing has that been? For That's me? awesome. It was fabulous. So always go out there and meet people. Always network. Always throw stuff out there. Don't be afraid. You might see things in jobs that you never would have imagined before. Mm-hmm. And I was talking about how, you know, if you want to be a veterinary illustrator, maybe go feed horses or work on a ranch or do something like that. One of my years, one of my semesters I was teaching in Grenada, the medical illustrators had been asked by the veterinary school to paint on the horses. So what was happening is the first year veterinary students were getting ready to do their first ultrasound sonography course where you actually, you know, you take the a sonogram machine, like the handle thing, okay. and you hold mm-hmm. it up to the horse so you can mm-hmm. feel all the, see the different organs and things. And because they were first years and they didn't really know the anatomy yet, they had the medical illustrators come in first and like actually draw on the horses where all the organs were. It was absolutely fascinating. So cool. Oh, so, nice. So when they put the, the machine up against the horse on the spleen, there was actually a spleen painted on the outside of the horse. Super cool. And during that experience, uh-huh. as medical illustrators, like you have to get a set of scrubs to be able to go into the cadaver lab and work in the cadaver lab. And so you usually just grab whatever. And on the island, there's not like a lot of things. So sometimes you bring mm-hmm. scrubs from home or you borrow scrubs from somebody else. But on campus, as students, every color of scrubs means something. And I had been wearing Andrew Swift's khaki scrubs that he'd left down there from when he'd been on the medical school, which apparently means veterinary professor. They had an emergency (laughs) where a goat was trying to have a baby and the baby goat was stuck. And they saw me in my scrubs and they're like, get over here, get over here. And I was like... No, no. And they're like, get over here now. (laughs) And so I helped them birth this baby goat. And it was the craziest thing. Like, you just never know (laughs) what might happen. I'm like holding a stick in its mouth. and they're. So you actually did did help. Oh, my God. That's too funny. That's amazing. (laughs) Right. The other illustrators are walking by to go in the barn and they're looking at me and they're like, what are you doing? And there's like six of us around this goat <laughs> trying to get the baby out. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. It was just wild. And what an experience that's, that is. And I got to amazing. see them inject this medicine into the jugular of the goat and like how they applied the pressure and the needle. And I mean, that's stuff we have to draw, but to be able to get to randomly see it is just absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Tell, tell us a bit about the experience at the Georgia program. How did you end up at the Georgia program? Well, it was during my time as an autopsy technician. I found out about what medical illustration was. I ended up getting in touch with a woman who worked at the Mayo Clinic. She was a medical illustrator. And that's the very first time I actually heard the words together, medical illustrator. And she told me, oh, yeah, and there's graduate schools and there's an association and there's a website. And you go here and you do this. And I was blown away. I was so excited. And I ended up going to the Georgia program, not only because I play golf and I love to play golf and they have the master's tournament there. So it sounded beautiful and amazing. Um, but honestly, <laughs> I went there because of a bunch of really bad rumors. I had sort of been given some information from someone. I don't remember who it was. And I was told that 
you had to be Canadian to go to the Toronto program, which was totally false. Um, I was told that you had to have a background in Spanish to go to the Texas program, which was completely false. I was told that the Chicago <laughs> program only taught computers, which was totally false. Um, the Michigan program was closing and that's how I ended up in Georgia. So Georgia was the only school I applied to. And I ended up in the Georgia program, which I thought ended up being fantastic. I loved all of my students. There were eight of us. We all got along great. Yeah. I love the, uh, you mentioned in the book, these comp assignments where it was sort of like a pop quiz illustration. Uh, you got to tell us a little bit more about these. (sighs) Comps were these crazy homework assignments. I mean, they were projects that were given to all of us eight medical illustration students. We were in our second year. The way comps worked, and I think it was when we were sort of taking our business class, we were creating our websites, we were polishing up our master's thesis, all this sort of things. We were still taking classes and still doing projects, but we had more freedom in our schedule. And a comp would essentially show up on your desk in an envelope, and not everyone got comps at the same time. Comps were sort of random. It would show up on your desk, it'd be in an envelope, and it would be like, okay, you need to create an illustration for print, black and white, all of the facial nerves and muscles labeled in six inches square, and it's due on Thursday for full critique. And it's like, whoa, all right, here you go. So it teaches you how to multitask or how to manage your time, but also how to make deadlines. And sometimes if you had a lot of other stuff going on, you're like, whoa, how am I going to do this? So comps were randomly thrown out to everyone and everyone got a different project. Um, None of them were similar. So when we critiqued them, you weren't looking at someone else's project that was the same subject as yours. Those were great. Asha Kays, I work with her a lot. She was um, a fellow classmate of mine in the Georgia program, and she also does medical legal work. Um, She's a very successful medical legal studio. And she got me in contact with the Virginia Trial Lawyers Association. And I gave them a presentation on visual storytelling and medical illustration. And Asha was on the the conference when we were talking about everything and they were introducing me. She said, Annie always got her comps done first. She was always done with everything first. We couldn't figure out how she did it, but she would just knock everything out and go play nine holes. And I think I just got good at being fast. I loved her for saying that. Yeah, that was speed so is key. What a testimonial. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> what was your favorite assignment that you worked on when you were down there? I would say it would have to be pig surgery. Every medical illustrator, to my knowledge, every medical illustrator animator coming out of an accredited master's program has to learn surgery in, in some form or fashion. You have to learn how to suture because you can't draw suturing if you don't know what it really feels like. You need to see the color of organs. And and we observe surgery all the time. Um, we observed surgery in the hospital with any surgeon that would allow us to come in and we would scrub in. But we would go in and observe surgery. But obviously, they weren't going to let us practice surgery on humans. What we did is we did surgery on these giant 40-pound pigs. And they were anesthetized. And the doctor was there, our professor. And he would put the pig under And it would be on the drip and we would, you know, drape the pig and prepare for doing the surgery. And we would use the scalpel and cut into their skin and remove the organs and suture them closed and do all the things. And 
as I understand it, the Georgia program, they used to do the surgical class with dogs. And obviously, you know, society and culture has changed so much that now they use the pigs. The pig surgery was, it was scary, but you had a partner. We were in teams. And so that made it feel a little bit better. And it was fun that we were all together, but it was just so, I mean, visceral, obviously. But that was an excellent experience <laughs> to like really be doing it. And then, of course, we had to do an illustration based off that experience. And whatever uh, surgery we performed, whatever procedure we did, we then had to do a pen and ink illustration. And I did that illustration. And then I later turned it into a color piece. One of the things that I remember about medical illustration school and all of us in all our cubicles in the studio, when you do a surgical piece, you want... You always want to do an orientation in the beginning so the audience understands the position of mm-hmm. the patient. Well, with a pig, the pig's laying down right. on its back with its hooves in the front and back and the belly's exposed. <laughs> After we all turned in our assignments and the assignments were complete, we all took our inset, our surgical inset of the pig on its back before surgery. And if you flip the pig upside down, it looks like it's flying. And so we all had our flying pigs and our cubicles. <laughs> it was just one of those things that helped take the edge off. Little humor mixed in with all the uh, right all the reality. Now you have to tell us about the reality of your thesis project because that blew me away. <laughs> that is one of the coolest things. I, I like. I couldn't believe you. You got to tell us about this. Is our senior year, we have to come up with a master's thesis. There's a lot of pressure for your master's thesis to be excellent because it's going to be judged by, I don't remember if it was the Vesalius Trust or the Inez Demene, or there's an award given that's kind of based off that. And we had to come up with it out of the clear blue sky. And I really wasn't sure what I wanted to work on. But I knew that I had all of this experience in the morgue. I knew that there were problems in the morgue that could be solved with medical illustration. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to stick to what I know and I'm going to go over to the hospital and I'm going to meet the examiner that does the autopsies for bodies that come out of the hospital, which is a completely different thing than working for the county or the government and bodies that come off the street. Regardless, I went and I worked with him and I told him I wanted to do my master's thesis on the autopsy process. Specifically, When you do the external examination of the body first, what the medical examiner does is they take a clipboard and they go to a little shelf Mm -hmm. and they take, let's say it's a female. There's male, female, adolescent, child, front, back. So you take a piece of paper, which is just a copy Mm -hmm. of a copy of a copy that's been Xeroxed since the life of the morgue, right? So it's not very pretty. So you take this piece of paper, you put it on your clipboard, you have your gloves on and you walk around and you're moving and touching the body and writing on this piece of paper at the same time. So what it is, is it's a big black and white outline of a body and you mark, there's a tattoo here. There's a laceration here. There's a bullet entry here. And then you, you measure it and you roll the body over and then you do the backside. And so this piece of paper on the clipboard, it gets smudged. It can have blood on it. It can have maggots on it. You don't know. And then when the external exam is done, then that's set on a kit on a counter. The next thing you do is you take toxicology samples from the body. And then those often go in their tubes to the same counter. And then you open up the body and you start the internal exam. Mm -hmm. And by the time the medical examiner is done, 
and they take off their gloves and, you know, they go in to wash up and take all the biohazard, you know, suits off and stuff. Then they go and they pick up that paper and they walk into their office. They then translate it onto another page. And I'm just like, there's got to be a way. First of all, all the little copies of copies of copies, there's got to be a way to get rid of that. Plus, they're not very good. There's no lateral. Mm-hmm. There, at the time, there was no lateral view. So if you're trying to show everything from the AP mm-hmm. or from the posterior, <laughs> and maybe you had something in the armpit, there were parts of the body that you could not address in the external examination sheets. So I decided for my mm-hmm. master's thesis, I was going to create a tablet, <laughs> a some sort of what is now an iPad. Essentially, I was going to create some sort of digital device. It would be only for the autopsy suite. It would stay in there all the time. So as dirty as it got, it always stayed in there. It never transferred to the office side of the morgue. It would have a touchscreen, and you could bring up any view of any body you wanted. You could bring up a, a baby, infant, or you could bring up the rape kit view, or you could bring up um, a, a head looking down shoulders view of a man who maybe has like a wound on the top of his trap, but you would just bring it up on the screen and then you would write everything. And then the handwriting recognition would automatically print. This laceration was eight centimeters. This tattoo says, hi mom, you know, like whatever. And then what you would do <laughs> is you would hit print and it would wirelessly print in the medical examiner's office. So when they got done with the case, there was a clean copy sitting in there and all the handwriting was already recognized and turned into font and all that kind of stuff. And then I was like, oh, this would be so cool because the police could use this when they're at the homicide scene. Uh, Fire departments could use this when they're like mapping out where a fire started and this and that. It'd be all under the OSHA guidelines where this dirty thing would stay in the room where it's meant to be. Like there would be one specifically for the decomp room that would just stay in the decomp room. And every piece of paper that the medical examiner could possibly need would be on there digitally. And I was like, oh, and then like maybe doctors could use this and they could wirelessly send prescriptions, the little paper prescriptions to pharmacies. And I just came up with all these great ideas for this tablet. And of course, in 1999, none of these things existed. It might have been 2000 when I wrote my master's thesis based off this tablet that I thought would maybe one day exist. My professors were like, yeah, this is not great. They, they were not enthused. They didn't like the idea. And they're like, well, you have to show that maybe there is something kind of like this. And so I did some research and I found this very beginnings of what would be a screen tablet called a cube, a QBE. Mm-hmm. And if you Google... Right. Q, the mm-hmm. QBE 1999 and go to YouTube, you will see there's like an, this old yeah. video that somebody posted years ago of somebody in a conference hall presenting a wireless handwriting recognition screen tablet, which of course everybody has one now. And the electronic medical record is used by everyone now and everyone wirelessly prints to everywhere. And so it was this beautiful idea I, I did my master's thesis best based on this. Oh, yeah, brilliant. And I passed, but everybody hated it. Like all my professors were like, eh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and now it's like real. <laughs> but it wasn't a drawing. <laughs> it was. I did all the external examination sheets. 
that would be then the digital one. Okay. Okay. Pull up. <laughs> so I did all the views of the infant, all the views of an adolescent, all the female and all the male views. So I had created all the external examination sheets wow. as the illustration part of it. And those would be the files that you didn't have to copy of a copy of a copy and get maggots and blood all over it anymore. There you go. Wow. You're ahead of your time. You're just too ahead, ahead of your time. Ahead of my time. What can I say? I did not win any awards. I did not get a scholarship. I did not make any money for inventing the iPad. <laughs> I think you've done an amazing job of documenting the history of medical illustration in uh, the medical legal market in your book. I wanted to jump over to some of the key figures that you talked about because I'm, I'm just so happy that you put these folks down on record and you've gotten their names in there mm -hmm. in the, they're literally in the history books now and they really deserve to be there. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can talk about a few of the, the key players who were instrumental to the, the birth of the med legal industry. Honestly, when I started researching that chapter, I immediately called Bill Westwood because he has the ironclad memory of all the history and he works in medical legal and he knew so much and he directed me in all the right areas. And I also called Joan Beck, who is a member of the AMI. She was the first medical illustrator hired by a lawyer to work in the law firm in-house. Mm. And this was in 1980. And okay. she was hired at the same time she was finishing her master's thesis. So she wrote her master's thesis on demonstrative evidence and medical illustration for the courtroom. 20 years later, I got her same job and I found her master's thesis in the desk that was now going to be my first medical illustration position desk. I, so I knew she had been serendipity critical. Yeah, she had been critical in forming what we now know as the medical legal industry. And based off what Bill told me and what Joan told me, I went and did a bunch of research on where did all of this really start? I think it was 1841 was the first illustration that was used in a court. Um, obviously, photos and maps and some diagrams were used slowly along the way. But it was really in the early, maybe in like the 40s, that attorneys really started looking to find an illustrator to translate like x-rays or something into something more tangible. And I learned that there was an attorney named Albert Aberbach and he practiced in the fifties. I have his book here. So Albert Aberbach was an attorney in 1958 in New York. And he was the first attorney to speak at an AMI conference. He spoke with Jack Diner, who was a medical illustrator okay. practicing in the legal field, even though it was very, very rare and very unknown for medical illustrators to work with attorneys. And so I started reading Averbach's books. And then I learned about Melvin Belly, who was also a attorney who used medical illustrators, and he also wrote books. So there is a series of these handling accident cases. So Aberbach wrote this. This is volume one of seven. And so I went to the law library and I started reading his books. And I learned that a long time ago, attorneys that wanted to practice in injury and malpractice 
were allowed to observe surgery. They took basic anatomy courses in law school. There was an entire attorney-doctor relationship. I was like, oh my God, where did all this go? Like, how did we lose all that? So in the 50s and 60s, it was like a really beautiful thing. If you were an attorney and you wanted to practice and helping people that have been hurt, you could study that in law school. That's what, And so why, what changed there? Why, why did that stop? So fascinating. And this might be where we all, especially if you're afraid of doing medical legal work because you think it's bad work or, or all the negative connotations, what happened was in 1979, the very first injury attorney, he created a TV commercial. You know, so like 1-800, I'm hurt. Or billboard, you know, all the attorneys were like, have you been in a crash? And they're on the yellow pages. All of a sudden, it became this, um, this industry that looked very greedy, like they were looking for hurt people. The ambulance mm. chaser era was born. The law schools didn't like mm. that. So they stopped promoting injury law as a practice mm. of law. And now... All the lawyers in law school that wanted to study injury law were not getting any handouts from the law schools. There was no Uh more basic medical classes, no anatomy, no, yeah, you can go observe surgery. They just didn't teach personal injury as a practice anymore. It was embarrassing to the other attorneys. I mean, obviously, there are Mm. hundreds of practices of law and personal injury is just a very small portion of that. As I understand in the United States, 7% of lawyers practice injury and malpractice. So when you think about it, it's actually a very small group of mm-hmm. students coming yeah. out of law school that are looking to go into this profession. So in 1979, all of a sudden, the law students aren't getting any basic medical anymore. And then in 1980, the rules changed where you could illustrate summary evidence without all the legal mumbo jumble, made it very much easier for an attorney to produce a medical illustration in court. So now all of a sudden, the attorneys weren't getting any medicine and the courts were allowing medical illustrations. So it all just kind of flip-flopped and all of a sudden, all the attorneys were like, oh, now we need a medical illustrator. The rule also changed. The medical illustrator now did not have to testify to the illustrations. The medical Mm. expert could testify to the illustrations. So all of these things kind of happened at the same time and learning about all this and man, the stories of Bill Westwood remembers from back in the day and um, the AMI conferences. I mean, it was years and years and years of medical illustration conferences, the AMI before legal work was even promoted amongst us, let alone promoted by the law schools there, there are all kinds of players that I mentioned in the book. Um, LMA Breckenridge started everyone thinking, well, you know, maybe medical illustrators have something to contribute to the courtroom. Obviously, Jack Diner was played a huge part in that. Lauren Schaubert, Mike Easker. Anyway, there, there's a lot of people. Uh, Diane Richardson. That's that's amazing. Yeah, you've, you've touched on a few of the motivations, but um, what are some of the key reasons why attorneys should be hiring medical illustrators? First and foremost, because they don't have any medical background. It's very, very rare for an MD to become a JD 
or for a JD to have MD background. I do know a couple uh, JD attorneys that are RNs and they're awesome to work with. You love an attorney that knows his medicine. Um, But essentially most don't. The complexity of injuries and surgeries can be very overwhelming, not only for the attorney, but obviously for everyone they're trying to teach. And the medical records can be very voluminous. Um, Like I have a case right now, and this is how many radiology discs I have that I have to go through. Wow. And an attorney's not going to open up every radiology, a DICOM disc and look at the MRIs. They don't know what they're looking at. They, They need someone that they can send this to, to look through. They need someone to put it into pictures. Obviously a picture is worth a thousand words. Simplify it. What did the injuries look like? Like for instance, if you have, if the attorney goes through 5,000 pages of medical records and is able to dial it down to just a couple pages of these are the injuries and the surgeries, and they can read that to a jury, but it still doesn't mean anything. But if you can show the jury an entire body right. and point out every single thing, then they, they start to get an idea of what's happening. So attorneys should hire medical illustrators to help with their medical records, to help in understanding the terminology, to help in understanding the anatomy, and to simplify their story. Like they need to stand up in a court and tell this story or write a brief for a hearing or, you know, in mediation or during a deposition. They need to understand that medicine so well that when they're speaking it, it's clear. And sometimes as clear as you speak it, that audience doesn't see it. To have an illustration is just wildly beneficial and to animate it, to animate what actually happened, animate the injury, animate the bone breaking and poking out of the skin, sticking out of the jeans, like show me, don't tell me. That's what one of my attorneys says all the time. That totally makes sense. Now, what would you say to the suggestion that, you know, photos could just do the job? You know, why not just use photos? Sometimes a photo works. And but very, very rarely is there a photographer at a crash scene. Almost Mm. never is there a photographer there during surgery. A photo can be very confusing. Um, It can kind of look like hamburger. It might show too much. It might show too little. It's kind of like if you're out walking around in nature and you take a picture of a mountain and you're going to take that picture of that mountain and try and teach someone what a volcano is and all the different parts of a volcano. Mm. I often get photographs, autopsy photographs, surgical photographs, especially now that everyone has a cell phone. There's plenty of pictures that come from the hospital, but there's no ruler sitting next to the laceration in question. There's nothing that says right or left. I can't tell you how many times I'll ask for a photograph of a scar after a surgery and they'll send like a picture of an arm. So what does that look like on the screen? It looks like nothing. What's right. What's left. What's dorsal. (laughs) Right. But like, I'm like, well, if you're going to take a picture and I need to see how big something is on the arm, include the hand. So you have a frame of reference to the front, to the back, all these things. Mm-hmm. Photographers don't do that very rarely in a legal case, in a lawsuit, when now you're looking at something that happened two or three years ago, are there any decent photographs to work from? The radiology is really your photograph. That is your instance of that person's actual anatomy, their anatomy, not what it looks like inside a textbook, but what their body looked like. So the radiology is huge. 
but as medical illustrators and animators, we're not taught to read radiology. So that's something you learn over time. And sometimes the radiology isn't enough. You show an x-ray to a jury and they're just like black and white stuff. Like, what does it mean? It doesn't mean anything. You Mm -hmm. still need the illustration. That brings me to another question about, you know, getting respect. So, you know, the questions like that, you know, like, why not just use a photo? I mean, sometimes it can kind of come off like people are trying to discredit the work that we do. So what have you found are good ways to have clients or any folks that you're working with uh, respect you and your skills as a medical illustrator? Well, working with attorneys, obviously, you know, there's some ego involved. I find that the most important thing is I never call myself an artist. I never call myself a freelancer. I always say I'm an illustrator. If somebody asks me if I went to art school, I always say I went to medical school. But the most important thing is to remember is people are people. And if you smile and if you acknowledge them as a person, you talk to them like, you know, they also have, they have a family, they have a life. Talk to people like they're other people. Don't be intimidated by them and they will respect you. One of the great things that you need to remember when you're working with attorneys and you're working with surgeons and medical experts, if you want them to respect you, first of all, you can't be intimidated by them, but mostly remember you're on the same team. You have the same goal and you're there to work together. And if you treat people with respect, they will respect you. And I find that surgeons and medical experts are very open and very easy to work with, mostly. If you just remind them, you know, hey, we're, we're on the same team here and like I'm here to help you do what you need to do for the attorney. What uh, is your favorite way to develop, uh, you know, your illustration work? What, what's, uh, what's your favorite medium to work in? <laughs> well, um, that's interesting. Okay. So usually when I start, I start with my trusty legal pad. Um, and my, when the records are really voluminous, The most important thing for me is to start getting everything in chronological order. Attorneys and paralegals love to label things by what hospital they came from or which doctor, because they know that when they depose that doctor, they want everything that pertains to that doctor, but nothing's chronological. So for me, I to show the anatomy and the chronology of what's happened to the anatomy, the most important thing is getting everything in order. So I usually start with a stick figure on my yellow pad. Then I start a list of dates Mm -hmm. and I just start, when was the crash or when was the explosion or when was the surgery or when was the thing, the event. And then I try and, you know, fill in the gaps, get everything in order, rename all the documents. And as anything comes up on the body, anything pre-existing, anything new, anything that came up while they were being treated, I mark the stick figure right, left, Mark a lung. This has happened here. Mark a a bleed was found here. Date when maybe a bleed resolved. Then I will usually, because I've been doing this for 20 years, I'll go straight into Photoshop. Um, I typically do not create sketches beforehand unless I just kind of need to plan out the story, the way the slides will go. But I usually just jump straight into Photoshop. I I don't write proposals for what I'm going to do. I usually just say I've been doing this forever. Just, I'm just going to start going. I'm not going to spend 
you know, five or six hours writing a proposal that's going to get shopped out somewhere else. I don't send the attorney sketches first because they don't know what they're looking at and their time is very short and they Mm. don't want to go back and forth. They just want, send me what is done. So it's done in their mind. It looks like the final, but I know that what I'm sending them, I'm going to ask them to then send to their medical expert and there will be modifications, but it is essentially done in my mind when I send it to them. I have a huge complex case, um, an injury case. There was a houseboat explosion and there were a lot of people on the houseboat. Uh, there were fatalities on the houseboat. There were burns on the houseboat. A generator exploded. And I have two clients who were both standing above the generator when it exploded. And this case is huge. I mean, it's huge. These women were treated. These two women were treated for years. And so what I've done is I've taken all all of their surgeries, and that's not the radiology. Those are Mm -hmm. just their surgical reports. Um, I think each woman had about between 18 and 25 surgeries. And I just go ahead and print them, and I get them in chronological order, And because this case is so complicated and confusing, because each woman was standing above the generator when it exploded, both their right and left feet and ankles and legs are completely comminuted puzzle pieces, just absolutely, I mean, destroyed. So it's almost like four cases because each leg is a case and each leg has its own surgical course. So what I'm doing is I'm separating everything out. Client number one, everything on the left leg. Client number two, everything on the right leg. But I'm going to, I'm going to, I laid on that rug last night, going through with fine detail, trying to make sure I'm not missing everything. Then you go and make sure that you choose the radiology that matches each surgery. Unfortunately, in this case, initially when the women were brought into radiology in the emergency room, one of them's labeled as a Jane Doe in some of the films. And then you get her name back and then you get her middle name and then you get this. So, so in the database in radiology, and I'm sure someone can tell me how to do this. It's by name and it's not by date. And so it's a matter of just going through and organizing everything and making sure there's nothing missing. And do we need to request more documents from the various hospitals? You know, they're helicoptered here and then they're helicoptered here. And then they're helicoptered back home and their surgeries go on for years. Yeah. D- uh, during this process, how do you evaluate your own work? How do you kind of evaluate yourself as you're going along? Sometimes there's not really time to. You just kind of <laughs> push it out there. I will admit that I, I will send illustrations to fellow medical illustrators and colleagues on occasion. And I'll be like, hey, you know, what do you think of this? Or... Maybe I'll ask another medical illustrator to help me. Um, I have a medical animator, illustrator animator that I work with all the time. And sometimes I'll show him something and be like, how do you think this looks? I also find that if I, if I want to market myself and I want to post something onto social media, I have like that little bit of hesitancy. I'm like, maybe I don't want to put that out for the world. Maybe I don't really like exactly the way that fracture line looks like, or am I sure I want to put that out there? Like, I don't want Andrew Swift to see that. Cause I think maybe that's wrong. 
And I think you know <laughs> when you put you've put your best effort in to create the best product and the best visual for the attorney in the timeline at hand and that will tell the story correctly. And you know if you're going to put it out there, if it's maybe like, and then you go back and you fix it and you make it right. All the your friends that you went to school with, send them the illustration, have them look at it. Medical illustrator uh, Zoshi Vanaha, I sent her every single illustration from my book, 89 illustrations. Actually, it's like 79 illustrations because there are some photos in there. She worked with me and we worked together and we collaborated and she did an anatomy check on every single illustration that I published in the book. And we found some errors. We found some little things like, oh, that shouldn't be there or go back. Are you sure you're not seeing 13 ribs here or this or that? I mean, it's the same thing as networking. Like you never know. I mean, work with your friends. That's what they're there for. And then you can help them too. These folks uh, that you're mentioning, I think this is great that you're talking about all the the people that you're in contact with. Who are some of the people that you need to have in your circle uh, to run a successful medical illustration business? I do mostly 2D medical illustration. So I need medical animators. I have medical illustrator animator friends that also do 3D printing, that do ZBrush. You, you want all your skill sets there. Just because I don't have all the skill sets, I need to offer all those skill sets to the attorneys. You also, you know what? We don't learn radiology and I have to read radiology all day long. It is very important for me to have friends that are radiologists. If I meet someone that's an orthopedic surgeon, you can guarantee that I am going to keep them close. Hopefully without annoying them, I am going to have their text message and I'm going to send them an x-ray every now and again and be like, is this as bad as I think it is? I sent a CT to an orthopedic surgeon friend one time and he's like, oh, that doctor should go to jail. And I was like, it's not a medical malpractice case, but I loved his energy. You know, I'm like, yeah, this is really bad. If there's a skill set you need to do your job well, then find who those people are. Find radiologists. If Even if you have to pay them, get an hourly rate. Be like, hey, I know you're a radiologist. Can I, can I throw you a couple images, you know? every couple months or whatever. Like, can I pay you for this? Can I buy you wine? Like, what can I do? So radiologists, obviously your colleagues, one of your colleagues is amazing at ZBrush. Oh my gosh. Tell them when you need them, you know what? This project would be done fantastic in ZBrush. Can we collaborate? Can we work on this together? Can I, you know, hire you for a couple hours to do this? Then what's also really interesting is I know we take business classes in medical illustration school but we don't really learn business. We don't learn how to run a business. We don't become entrepreneurs. We don't know all these things. If you have friends that are financial advisors or financial planners or accountants, ask them questions, make sure you're doing the right things. What, what's QuickBooks? What's this? What's that? I mean, usually when I'm at a dinner with a bunch of these types and they're talking about ROI return on investment, I know it's something I should be paying attention to and learning. Mm. It's something that I need for my business. But in my head, I'm thinking, oh, an ROI in Osiris or Horos is a region of interest. And then my brain starts going on turning a volume out of a CT. So there are skill sets I don't have 
And I, I seek those out and I make sure that I'm surrounded with people that have the skills that, that I wish I had. Man. Yeah. Especially with the tech, I think we all struggle. (laughs) I mean, even myself, I, I work mostly in 3d and video and even there it's just, oh man, it can be really just overwhelming at times because there's always something new. There's a new update or there's a new render engine, you know? What's what's the biggest change you've noticed in the in the, like tech uh, over the course of your career? Definitely what radiologists can do, um, mm. as far as the three D volumization of CTs and radiological data. It seems like once we all learned in Osirix that you could do a three D volume. Not only is everyone doing it, but they're doing it well, and mm. sometimes I will even get a client's Dicom disc. And it will already have the 3D volumes created. And, ev- and it will be in <laughs> steps. The rotation will be in, in freeze frames. Being able for us to now take something like that and export it as an object and put it into ZBrush and to be able to fill in and create true 3D models that aren't, you know, stock, like the original Zygote or something like that. Like it's the actual client. Like to be able to make Mm -hmm. these beautiful 3D models. Right. And what's so important in the legal world is if you create something from the client's CT data or radiology data or MRI, that's their data, that's evidence. So that's not just a visual aid, that's demonstrative evidence, which means the jury's allowed to consider it differently. It's very important. And it's one of those things I wish I had time to just take three weeks off and just work on radiology and the creation of 3d models from client data. Now coming at it from the other end of of the technology and sort of the distraction element of it, right? Because this is something we all struggle with as well. Uh, How do you deal with just the noise? You know, sometimes I deal with it really well. And sometimes I don't, sometimes I have to shut my door. Um, Like I literally have to Mm -hmm. leave myself in my office. I put my phone on a charger in my bedroom and I shut the door and you just have to ignore it. Um, I watched the movie on Netflix called Social Dilemma and that sure got me to leave my phone alone. I, I really try and stay away from it. And honestly, it doesn't take me very long of a Facebook scroll to know this is a total waste of my time. Sometimes it makes me mad that I've even sat and started it. I still keep a paper. <laughs> <laughs> I still keep a paper calendar. So every day I write down like exactly what I'm doing. And sometimes I will give myself deadlines that are false to make sure that I stay on track. And I I'll write mm, in my interesting. on my calendar. When am I working out? When am I taking time for myself? It's important to take care of yourself and have self-care and make sure you're working out and all the things. Honestly, if I didn't have the book and I didn't need all of my friends on Facebook and followers on LinkedIn and be able to show images on Instagram, I I think I'm kind of over it. I'm ready to be done with all of the social media that in this world, there's the pros and cons and you also do need it. Sorry to all my Facebook friends, but I try not, I try to almost never get on <laughs> Facebook, but on the other side, I try and do an Instagram post as often as I can, because I'm, I'm not only showing my friends, my artwork, 
but I'm sending stuff out into the world and to lawyers and to potential colleagues and to people that I admire. So there, there is a benefit as well of putting yourself out there. Yeah, I, I I wanted to touch base on this a little bit about maybe what you could recommend as best practices for sharing on social media, because this is something I think a lot of folks and especially artists struggle with. Uh, I'm still trying to navigate this and, and figure it out for myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do notice sometimes I look back at something I posted. And I'm like, oh, man, maybe I shouldn't have posted that. Or, mm-hmm. you know, what, what what recommendations do you have for social media best practices? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Um, definitely don't post anything political. If you mm-hmm. know that one of your clients <laughs> is going to follow you or look you up, um, just keep it out of the arena, keep it out of your public life. I mean, everyone has opinions and obviously it's been a really crazy year and a lot's going on, but it's just not necessary to to put it out there. I mean, I have a lot of attorneys that I've worked with for 15 plus years and I'm friends with them on Facebook. And if all of a sudden I can't get a hold of them on a case, I can look on Facebook and they're on a beach, you know, with their kids. I'm like, Oh, they're not even in the office. (laughs) Just the way I can track them, they can track you. So always think that whatever you put out there, somebody can screenshot, somebody can send you a text. Oh, hey, must be nice. You're on the golf course today. I mean, be aware of what you're doing. I think we should always watermark everything. But honestly, I'm not very good at doing it. I know I should be doing it every time. Same. Sometimes I don't because you just want to throw something out there. I'm like, oh, it's been like 10 or 15 days and I haven't put anything, posted anything on Instagram. I feel like I should just put something out there. I don't take the time to watermark it and you should, but just be aware. I think there's some um, cool saying, it says dance like nobody's watching, but email like it's going to be read in a deposition. So know that anything you put out there will be there forever. Uh, you know, like what, what do you really want to say? What, what, how do you want people Mm -hmm. to view you? So keep it simple, keep it simple, keep it friendly. Don't alienate anyone by what you say. I'm wondering also if, uh, if you might be able to share any lessons that you learned about facing new challenges, because I think that kind of goes hand in hand with the tech, anything that you've, uh, you picked up in that regard. I'm in a situation where I'm going through a lot of growing pains And I have some very significant new challenges where I essentially need to clone myself. And I know that that's not going to happen. I don't have a colleague that can clone me so that I can do twice the amount of work. I can get beaten down and I carry a lot of anxiety when I have a very daunting challenge ahead. It's sort of like preaching to the choir because I will let myself get very stressed out to the point where all of a sudden I realize I'm not even breathing. Like I'm so stressed and I'm so anxious. I can tell that I haven't even like taken a breath, but I think it's really important just to not forget yourself. Always take care of yourself. Know that it will always get done. If it's meant to happen a certain way, it's going to happen. Like trust in the process. Trust that as miserable as you've made yourself today, was it worth it? It's okay. Go outside turn off your phone, turn off your computer, sit for 30 minutes in the sun. It's okay. But that 30 minutes today is going to give you so much that is not really going to mean anything tomorrow. The really big challenges, I just try and not be so hard on myself. 
Don't beat yourself up. Know that it will get done. And if it doesn't get done and you fail or you make a mistake, you learn from that. You do better next time. One of the massive challenges that you've you've clearly mastered uh, is dealing with these massive volumes of information that you have to navigate through for each of these med legal cases. Um, you mentioned several times in the book just the volumes of, of medical records that you go through. Um, I'm wondering if you could share some tips on on the kind of system you use to organize all this information, all this information. If a paralegal sends me a digital document that's like 10,000 pages, I'm just going to be very upfront and say, if it's scanned, like sometimes they go through the OCR. So you can actually just search operation. And every time it says operation, it'll show up. But a lot of times they're not scanned. And sometimes I'll just be very honest. I will say, I know that you are going to have to go through here and pull out every single operation report and every single radiology report and Bates label it. So I'm just curious, have you already started doing that? Or all I really need is this MRI. Can you tell me what page that's on? And sometimes they'll get the point. Sometimes I'll be like, you know, mm-hmm. I charge by the hour. If you want me to go through this, I will. But if you've already asked a medical consultant to review your medical record. If somebody's already summarizing this, can you please send me that summary? Sometimes you just have to be really blunt. Like mm. you guys are crazy. This is going to take me a long time or, or just be very clear about what you want. And then sometimes you just have to be like, Hey, this is the way it is. We're going to have to go through it. So I set aside a time, I paper calendar it in and it's going to be a night. And I'll set it aside. I'll work all day long. I'll do work on whatever cases I need to work on. I'll just get my computer and I'll get my little yellow notepad and my pen and I'll sit down and I'm like, this is just my night. This is the way it's going to go. And we're going to go through and we're going to go through this entire PDF. We're going to write down what pages are important and you, you just have to commit to it. It's awful. You turn on maybe some music or have a glass of something that you enjoy and you just go through the entire document. And when you get used to looking at a lot of electronic medical records, you get used to what the pages look like. Mm -hmm. Like you can fly through a bunch of EKGs. Mm -hmm. If you're not looking Mm -hmm. for EKGs, you can fly through nurses notes or medications or input output. Like there's some things that just look a certain way, depending on what you're looking for in the medical record you start to get used to knowing what is not important. And obviously when you find a a narrated radiology or, you know, like an impression, sometimes those look a little different. They might have a different font because they're coming from a different department or an operation report. That's actually the full narrated dictated operation report. All of a sudden you'll be going through all these pages and you'll see like full paragraphs. You're like, Oh, this is important. Stop here. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to be like, Hey, I have no social agenda <laughs> this week because I have to tackle this. And just is the way it is. And you bill accordingly. You also talk a lot about, uh, you know, these tight deadlines. And I think that's definitely something important for people to know that the work we do, it can take a lot of time. But then sometimes, you know, if, if we're called to, we can, we can whip stuff out and we can definitely work under tight deadlines. Yeah. I'm wondering if uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about some of your time management strategies for working under tight deadlines? Well, I have two different strategies. First strategy is I will actually put a deadline on my production calendar that is earlier than when it is actually needs to be done to force myself to get it done. 
And my other strategy is, is you charge a rush fee. And if it's really fast, you're like, Mm. okay, it's going to cost this much because I'm putting every other case on my calendar away to do this for you. And this is what the rush fee is going to be. And sometimes you say, no, it's okay. It's taken me a long, long time to learn, but sometimes it's okay to be like, hey, attorney, I've worked with you for 18 years and I love you and I think you're a wonderful person. And no, I cannot do that in the next 48 hours. And then sometimes you just send it to a friend. I mean, all of us medical illustrators. So let's think about this. Roughly 1,200 medical illustrators and animators in the world. So that includes AIMS, AMI, mm-hmm. all the other groups across the globe, whether you came from a bachelor's program or certificate program, the rough number is 1,200 medical illustrators and animators in the globe. Only 20% of us do legal work. That's 400 of us. 400 of us just doing work for lawyers. We should all at least be familiar with one another or know who each other are. And if you have a case that comes up in a pickle, you call another medical illustrator, you know, and be like, hey, you want a rush job? This is how much you can charge and this is what it entails. Do you do you want to do this? I mean, who doesn't want an extra job thrown at them now and again? I love sharing work with my friends. I don't feel a lot of competition like, oh, no, I don't want anyone to know that I work with this lawyer. No, it's fine. They need something. Let's get it done for them. I can't do it right now. You do it. They're going to come back and need more cases. So I was talking about how many attorneys there are in the world and how many different practices, areas of of law. And only 7% of attorneys in the globe practice injury and malpractice, personal injury and medical malpractice. And in the United States, that 7% is 94,000 lawyers. So if you think there are 94,000 injury attorneys that probably have at least four cases going at any time. And there's only 400 medical legal illustrators. That means that I am working for 326 lawyers at a time, which means not all (laughs) use medical illustrators, but there is a ton of work out there. There is a ton of legal cases that need visualization, that need summarized for all the different applications within the litigation process. So there's a ton of work out there. And the more and more attorneys of this 94,000, the more of these attorneys that understand how beneficial it is to have visuals and start winning cases because they have, they're teaching better, they're telling their story better because everything is more clear. They're only going to want more and more visuals. And we've talked about the CSI effect. For years. So when the TV show CSI came out and all these different kinds of shows, ER, these, these are shows in the mass public house. Yeah. That teach the public some basic medicine and crime stuff and DNA fingerprint, all its sorts of yeah. like trace. We got to mention forensic files, of yes. course, forensic files. Yes. And so all these jurors, they now expect that kind of stuff. The stuff they see on TV, now they expect in the courtroom. Mm. So not only are we going to have more and more lawyers understanding how to show visuals, most of them are stuck now learning Zoom. They know that they need to show their visuals on screen. They are visually storytelling. They start to use medical illustrations. They're going to want more and more of them. And the juries are going to expect more and more of them. 
I don't think there's anywhere for the medical legal industry to go, but busier and more work and more high end work, more, this is what it looks like on TV. So this is what they expect. There's no way for me to just stand here in front of the modern juror and the millennials with their phones and their Instagram. A lawyer can no longer stand in front of that kind of jury box and just talk. I mean, if you're talking about a dog, you better show a dog on the screen. You've got to simplify this. Everyone (laughs) is visual now. We all are. Like, we won't even read a post on Facebook if it doesn't have a picture in it. And the juries are the same way. So I I see only Mm -hmm. more and more and more need for medical legal illustration. What other uh, sort of predictions do you have for the medical illustration field? Where do you think it's headed? I think it, it will just get busier and busier, like I said. I also see how there are non-medical artists all across the globe that are doing medical illustration, sometimes very, very cheap, being outsourced all over the place. And you, you can tell almost immediately if the work is good or not, and it's almost not good ever. Um, but an attorney will use a source like that a handful of times before they realize that they're either making a mistake or it's worth the extra money to have something done more accurately by someone that's actually done surgery or you don't want a kidney drawn by someone that's never seen a kidney. There's an element to that that's happening. It's not necessarily helping any of us because it's just like in the 3D volumization button on Osiris or Horos where anyone can take a CT and turn it into a model. Unless you know what you're making a model of and what you're looking at, you can't really turn that into something useful for the attorney. So for the attorney to hear of some company overseas that can make a 3D volumization of their client's data, they'll pay a flat fee to get that. And then they get it And it's completely useless because they don't know what they're supposed to be looking at. They don't know what's supposed to be highlighted. And whoever hit the button didn't clean it up or or realize exactly, you know, what what are we looking at? What's the point? As medical illustrators, this this is what we're trained to do is what is the visual story? What is the important part out of all of this complex data that makes it an effective visual tool? Um, So I foresee a lot of non-medically trained artists trying to do a lot of this work. Sometimes if you have a really good high resolution CT and you're just looking at a fracture, anybody that knows how to download Osiris can do it and click the button and probably come up with a pretty good looking fracture. But once anything gets more complex or more detailed than that, I think uh, the medical illustrator is still going to be the solution. I'm so glad you've, you've gone o- gone through this because I agree completely. And I think you make a great point that there's a, a vast difference between just using a tool and having a cool, you know, trick or, or a cool app that does something nice and actually being able to use that for a purpose and to do it in a custom way for a client who has very specific needs. How do you see these changes or or maybe different things happening within the med legal space? You know, how do you see med legal work changing in the future? I see it becoming more and more client specific. 
so less stock. An attorney can go on Google and screenshot a, a cervical fusion and use it, but it might not look like their client. It might be a white male and their client is a Hispanic female. I see more and more illustrations becoming client specific, which the judge is going to be more favorable to because they're based off actual evidence in the medical record. I had a really interesting conversation with a group of attorneys not too long ago where they said they're tired of the big medical illustration studios having salesmen. There's a time when Mm. at an attorney conference in an exhibit hall where all the vendors are, the attorney approaches a large medical illustration studio and they approach whoever's standing there and they think that person is the medical illustrator. That is the person that does the drawings. And they're like, hey, this is what I need. I have this client. She was in a car. She was rear-ended by an 18-wheeler. Her, She lost her leg and blah, 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 and da-da-da. And I have the medical records. And can I send you the radiology? And this is what I need. And this is what I want to show the insurance adjuster. Blah, 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 blah. They've explained the case. But now that person they explained it to is just a salesperson. And so then it goes to the office. And it gets put in the production pipeline. And then it ends up on a medical illustrator's desk and it ends up there as a case, but the energy, the passion, the story, what the attorney actually wants does not make it through the grapevine. This group of attorneys I was talking to, they wanted to start their own medical illustration studio for their cases where there were no salesmen. There was no exhibit booth. They're just their people in their law firm doing their cases that they have immediate contact with, which is how I started 20 years ago was working in a law firm. I only worked for our attorneys. I had access to the clients themselves. I could photograph them. I I got to actually see their scars. I didn't have to worry about getting, you know, just the picture of the arm. I, I could shake their hand and talk to them. And so the cases that and the illustrations I created being in-house at a law firm, I think were maybe at times much more effective than the ones I do from afar. And I see over time, there will be fewer and fewer, and maybe there won't be, but there will be less medical illustrators representing themselves in exhibit halls. And there will be more and more medical illustrators working one-on-one or inside law firms which is kind of an old thing from the past, but it works the best. And I see the attorneys starting to figure that out. What, what's new for you now? Uh, what do you got working in, uh, working on the background? Well, I have the houseboat explosion. Oh, okay. Right, right. <laughs> it's so overwhelming. Um, I use a medical animator, medical illustrator animator out of the Chicago program. His name is Justin Craig. Mm-hmm. He's amazing. He is actually mm-hmm. exploding all of their feet. As we speak, <laughs> I will be doing all the surgeries based off his explode, exploded models. We're going to rotate the animations are so cool. We have one of them almost done. Um, I have about 18 other cases going. I'm just trying to manage time. I'm trying to make sure I'm doing them in the right order for when they need to be done. And honestly, I'm, I'm probably going to have to start thinking about hiring. Um, I need another me, which is makes me feel very vulnerable because I know that I'm going to need someone that's just like me in all the good and bad ways. So I'm 
probably going to start looking for another medical illustrator that can work with me all the time. That's very OCD, very okay with deadlines. Also sees you have to have the passion for the legal community. Like if you call lawyers, ambulance chasers, and you think the hot coffee McDonald's case was frivolous, then you're probably not a good fit for the industry because you don't understand what's really going on in the industry. (laughs) And there's a lot of nuances with all these things. Yeah. I could do an entire podcast on what really happened in the hot coffee case and it would blow you away what really happened. And that woman ended up dying from her burns. She had three sets of skin grafts and essentially melted because her seatbelt was on. And first of all, she was an elderly lady. She's a passenger. McDonald's coffee is only made every three days. So in between those days, it is boiled at night to keep it from growing mold. So she received a cup of coffee that had just stopped boiling. She was an old lady. She had her wheel, her seatbelt on. And when it spilled into her lap, she her flesh essentially melted out of her crotch. And she ultimately died from those burns. And the attorney that was willing to take the case, when they finally started working on it, found 70 similar complaints against McDonald's that they all just shook off and said, we don't mm-hmm. care. So when you go into the details of that case like, for real, and when you hear about why the jury gave her $83 million, the $83 million, that number was how much McDonald's makes in profit every year globally on coffee. That's why they gave her that number. Because they wanted to punish McDonald's so that, uh, and what is 83 million to McDonald's? That's a drop in the bucket. That's that's like, oh, I lost $20 in my best pair of pants. You know, they I lost them. To McDonald's, it's nothing. And everyone <laughs> else is like, oh, I'm going to spill hot coffee on me and get $83 million. First of all, you have to understand what the number represents. And then you have to understand that right after that, the judge then said, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, thank you. I understand how you came up with that number. And I agree with you. But this is what we're going to give her. And all she actually got was medical bills. And I think she got $3 million. And I don't think she lived long enough to see it. So you have to have a passion for the law. And you you have to like love what you're Mm -hmm. doing. You have to understand that when I work on a a motorcycle case, it's not just because, you know, some people choose to ride motorcycles and they're not safe, but maybe what happened to them was because the street was designed wrong or the sign was wrong or this was wrong or the 18 wheeler that hit them was on drugs or they'd been drinking or they were texting. And look, we have the actual text message. They ran over this guy because they weren't paying attention. You have to care about the bigger picture And how every case you work on helps make the world and the street and the 18-wheeler drivers or the surgeons safer for everybody else. So there's an element to it that you you really have to care about the work. Otherwise, it will eat you up because it can be hard. What advice would you have for your younger self? I don't know who I got it from. I'm not going to blame my dad, but I might be looking at him. <laughs> I'm a little, I'm definitely a little OCD, but I'm a perfectionist and writing the book taught mm. me to stop being a perfectionist. It is not going to be perfect. I've already found a typo and there's a mistake in an, in an illustration. It's not going to be perfect. Nothing has to be perfect. I would somehow 
tell myself that it doesn't have to be perfect. I don't know the word for it. I think I needed to chill out a little bit. I think I needed to be a little bit more easier kid, and I'd probably tell myself that, you know what? The cool kids are not that cool. They're all going to be dorks by the time mm-hmm. they're 20 and you're just fine. And it's okay to just be who you are. Do you have any, uh, favorite fun facts about science or biology or medicine? The coolest thing that I loved while I was doing autopsies that just blew me away every time was no matter what color the person was, no matter their weight, no matter their height, any body that came in, whether it was decomposed, whether it had been burned, anybody, any adult comes in, by the time you take off their skin and their layer of fat, almost everyone looks exactly the same. Like the rib cage on everybody. Granted, you know, obviously you get a big Harley rider, he's going to be a little bigger and you get a petite woman, it's going to be a little smaller, but essentially everyone looks exactly the same on the inside. It is so cool. It just would always blow me away. Anybody, you open them up and everyone's the same. Annie, thank you so much. Annie Goff, illustrator and author of Injury Illustrated, How Medical Images Win Legal Cases. Thank you so much for your time today, Annie. This was an amazing privilege to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you, Paul, so much. This has really been a treat. Thanks, Annie and Paul, for that very interesting interview. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in to our Learn Medical Art podcast. You can find our show notes and resources from this episode on our website, www.learnmedical.art. Give us a follow on social media at Learn Medical Art. And if you want to get in touch, you can reach us via our website or send us a DM. If you like this episode, go ahead, leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Stay tuned for our next episode where we share more tips, tricks, and advice on working in the medical illustration and animation industry industry.